0: Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 142, After Pittsburgh. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson.
1: And I'm Lex Rothberg.
0: And we are taking a break from our regularly scheduled set of interviews. We've been in a series of interviews exploring the 2013 study by the Pew Research Center called A Portrait of Jewish Americans, and we're going to return to that subject next week. But we felt that even though we released a special midweek episode to think a little bit right after the events in Pittsburgh, we decided that we really wanted to talk about this uh, amongst ourselves, and we have been getting numerous requests from listeners to try to figure out what our take is on it. Not because I think that people are particularly interested in our take, but because I think that it's the function of our podcast for a lot of folks to help them think about their take. And uh and then we'll leave it to you to sort of uh take it from there. But hopefully our framing and perhaps some of our language will be helpful to you in thinking about what happened just about a week ago.
1: And by the way, Dan briefly mentioned that we got a lot of notes from people. And I just want to name gratitude to all of you because honestly, the fact the, the fact that people care what what the two of us and what this show thinks in the wake of this massacre is, I mean, it's a huge responsibility that we're trying to take really seriously, um, but it's also a huge honor. So just thank you to those of you that that do look to this podcast to play that role. And like Dan said, we really, we're, we're not speaking from a place of huge authority, like we somehow have all the answers, but we do hope that this can help you determine what your answers are.
0: So I want to just start Because our podcast is usually not time bound in the sense that we hope that people can listen to our episodes years later and still get something valuable out of them, whereas this one very much is an episode of its time, although what we hope to discuss we think will also have implications for years to come. So we hope that people will listen to it. But to the extent that folks don't know or don't remember all the details of what happened in Pittsburgh, we just want to give a a brief summary that captures some of the items that we think are important. The very first is that on a Saturday morning, on a Shabbat morning, just a few minutes after the beginning of services, in a synagogue called Tree of Life, which actually houses three different congregations, an anti-Semitic, based on all of his statements at the time and on social media, an anti-Semitic man came in armed with weapons and took his AR-15-style assault rifle and ended up killing 11 people and I believe injuring two members of the the congregation as well as four police officers. Clearly, this man was motivated by anti-Semitism, as he stated on numerous occasions. But in addition to that, another aspect of the story is that one of the three congregations that was housed in this synagogue building had participated in a special Shabbat that was organized by HIAS, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, which is a Jewish organization that, when it was founded in 1881, over 100 years ago, was primarily there to help Jews immigrate successfully to the United States. But as waves of Jewish immigration decreased, and especially in recent years, Hyas has really focused on helping other folks immigrate to the United States based on Jewish values, certainly Jewish values as Hayas understands them, and Jewish values also as I understand them. And one of the congregations in the Tree of Life Synagogue building had participated in the Hyas Shabbat, and it's clear from social media postings that the killer knew about this and was very upset about this, and posted on social media that, among other reasons that he hates Jews, is because he perceived them to be... uh, Working to open the doors of America to other people that he hated, and in particular, may have been triggered by a supposed caravan of people who are apparently now moving from Honduras and other uh, countries in that area through Mexico and trying to get to the US border. And uh, that is something that has gotten a lot of play in media outlets that uh, white supremacist types like to uh, watch and um, follow on social media and on the web. And so that toxic stew of triggers apparently is what ultimately moved this man from being an anti-Semitic hater online and in his personal social circle to being a murderer.
1: Yeah, and and I want to really emphasize there are reasons that he... I mean, I don't know this man personally, obviously, but it's not an accident that he made the connection between Jews who support progressive ideas and especially Jews who support refugees and immigration reform um, in a way that he feels threatened by. It's not an accident that he made that connection because we're living in a government right now whose presidential administration is, is saying directly and perpetuating directly tropes that uh, encourage people to think this way. I mean, the, we've got talk about George Soros happening left and right. Uh, I, left and right is a weird phrase to use there. I don't mean it in the political sense. I mean, we've got tons of conversation happening about how somehow George Soros is is A, fueling some socialist conspiracy, which is bonkers, considering he is a billionaire who made his money very much through capitalist mechanisms, um, it shows you how little logic is behind this, and B, that he's funding people who are trying to sneak their way into the US, steal jobs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're trying to say that this is entirely independent from Jewishness, but it's not. And we can look back to history and see all sorts of situations where the exact same kinds of things were happening, where also people at the time claimed, oh, no, 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 it's not because they're Jewish, we're just naming particular people, or oh, it just happens to be that people who are the worst are Jews, and we're just sort of naming that. So there's responsibility here in halls of power, and we need to think about what that says to us, A, as Jews... And how we need to relate to those halls of power. And be as human beings, what where we need to be showing up for others who are affected by these by these same forces. Because we're not the only ones being marginalized right now. As this situation so so obviously portrays um in its connections to immigration sentiment, most most immigrants right now are not Jewish. This guy wasn't killing Jews because they were helping other Jews immigrate. He was killing Jews because they were helping human beings immigrate who were not Jewish. And so the message that that sends me and that I think it needs to send all of us as Jews is that our oppression is intricately intertwined with the oppression of others.
0: So there are two main topics that we want to cover today. But the first topic that we really want to talk about is anti-Semitism. And the second topic that we want to cover is the question of, quote, politics, you know, that the people are saying, let's not politicize this. And clearly, for those who've been listening to the podcast all this time, that's not our take. We think that politics is part of life and there's no such thing as, as no politics. And we want to talk about that. So let's talk first about anti Semitism, because clearly, the man who killed these 11 Jews was a person who was an anti-Semite, along with lots of other anti-Semites that live in America. However, I think what's important to to think about here is not only that this man was an anti-Semite, but also why he took his anti-Semitism to the point of murder and to the point of the most murderous anti-Semitic act in the history of the United States. And when something happens that's the most... X in the history of Y, I think we really have to ask ourselves, why did that happen now? Was it just random? Or is something happening now that would lead people who have not been acting in a certain way for hundreds of years to feel the license to act that way? And maybe we're getting into the politics right away, but I do think that it's at least worth pointing out that over the last two years, haters of all kinds antis of all kinds, racists of all kinds, and let's name it white supremacists, have been emboldened to speak more than they've ever spoken before. Or I shouldn't say that they've ever spoken before. They were doing a lot of speaking during the Jim Crow era, for example, during the period of slavery. So I guess I should say that there have been times in American history when they felt emboldened to speak. And those times have been when the law or the government was perceived to be... On their side and so I think that what is important to see about these times is that as Andrew Gillum recently said he's running for the governor of Florida and as he recently said about his opponent I'm not saying that he's a racist but what I am saying is that the racists think he's a racist and so I'm not necessarily saying and I don't think it's necessary to say whether or not Donald Trump is an anti-Semite But it is worth pointing out that the anti-Semites believe that they are going to be supported or not opposed by the government to an extent that they have not believed that before. So the first thing that I I really want to point out to the folks who are concerned about an uptick of anti-Semitism and that nevertheless seem to be supporting Donald Trump in some way, if you're afraid of anti-Semitism, it's not in spite of who is in power in the government, anti-Semitism is facilitated by the government. And if Donald Trump is not an anti-Semite, and I think there's fair reason to believe that he is not an anti-Semite, not in an intentional sense. However, if he's not an anti-Semite and he sees that certain things that he may be saying are causing an environment in which anti-Semites feel licensed to act on their anti-Semitism, he should do everything in his power to tamp it down. I don't see that happening.
1: Yeah. And for for me, um, so there's a few things that I'd latch on to there. First, I really strongly agree with you citing Andrew Gillum. The, the whole point of it's not whether X person is a racist, but that the racists think they're racist. That is crucial. And it's also crucial with respect to anti-Semitism and respect to Donald Trump. It's actually not So, like, we can have an important, interesting conversation about whether Donald Trump himself is sort of as an identity, an anti-Semite. It doesn't so much matter to me. What matters to me is his impact. And his impact is anti-Semitic right now. His impact is perpetuating anti-Semitism. And I'm actually sitting, as we speak, next to an original copy uh, that I own of The International Jew, which is probably the most famous, infamous document known for its anti-Semitism in American history. One of them, at least. And what I want to say about this book is that it is intentionally framed as sort of a neutral observer talking, and they even talk about anti-Semitism. They don't like, they don't pretend there is no such thing as anti-Semitism. They sort of, they place themselves in relation to anti-Semitism that is sort of overkill and too much. And then they say, oh, but we're we're telling the real facts. And here's how Jews are behind international business and all sorts of things. And they quote the protocols of the elders of Zion for a bunch of chapters. Like the idea that we've somehow... That, that the anti-Semitism in the past was, that was explicit. And that was people really, really just saying, I hate Jews, I hate Jews in public. Like, that's not what it was. That's not how this operates. Like, people always think that they are not anti-Semitic when they perpetuate anti-Semitism. And they have always said, I am not a, you know, anti-Semite as an identity, while they go and say things that end up hurting Jews. So it's really not about whether this is on purpose. It's about whether it's happening. So don't focus on whether it's inadvertent or not. Like Donald Trump is complicit here because he is talking about a globalist conspiracy. He uses the globalist word all all the time. And note the name of international Jew, by the way. It's called the international Jew. The the core of all of this thinking is that Jews are not loyal primarily to whatever country they live in, they're loyal to the world. And honestly, I kind of like that idea. I I want all people, Jewish or not, to care about the well-being of our world more than any particular nation. I'm not so jazzed about nationalism. We can talk more about how Donald Trump talks about nationalism. But that idea is so crucial here, and it's part of what motivated the killer. Like, he thought that a bunch of Jews were helping people from outside this country come in because he doesn't believe that Jews really care about this country. They care about the world. And for him, that was terrible. So I really want us to wrestle with this anti-Semitism and understand it historically because the whole idea that this is some mild version of something that was much more insidious and obvious in the past just is a total misunderstanding of history. And the book that I'm sitting next to proves that.
0: And could i also just sort of interject a metaphor here that i've been thinking about and by the way i'm i'm eager for people to help me get the metaphor better including you lex but you know the way that i look at this is like imagine antisemitism to be this little flame that's always burning but it's like in this room that you know we've been actively pumping some kind of inert gas into to kind of keep it just as this low flame because you can't make it go away completely for all kinds of reasons and Unfortunately, some people were deluded into thinking that it, had, that it had somehow gone away completely. You know, I think a lot of the response that people have to what happened here is sort of like people who believe in God forever and then all of a sudden see some evidence that proves to them there is no God and their whole world is shattered. So if you believe that America was free of anti-Semitism and all of a sudden there's a huge attack on Jews, then your world is shattered. Your image of America is shattered. But I never thought that about America, that there was no anti-Semitism. I thought that anti-Semitism was basically kept under control by a set of principles and a government that was devoted to that never being able to turn into a conflagration. Now, I still think that fundamentally. Um, However, what's happened, I think, is that what Trump has done is... Turn the dial down on the inert gas that was being pumped into this room, right? That's, that's the most charitable view of what he's done. You could argue that he's pumping oxygen into that room. Or you could argue that he's dumping kerosene onto that flame, but let's take the most charitable view. He's just turned the dial down on the inert gas that's being pumped in. And as a result, that little flame starts to spread. And at a certain point, if it, if it grows and spreads far enough, it starts to reach some of the explosives that are on the shelves around the edges of that room. And I think that what we've seen here is one of those explosives going off. But when the explosive goes off, on the one hand, we want to be focused on the fact that the explosive went off and caused a lot of damage, and we wanna really focus on that damage and fix the damage and everything. But we also should ask ourselves, why did that explosive go off? And in my view, if you say that the only reason why the explosive went off is because anti-Semitism has always been around and has you know and and you you were deluding yourself to think that it wasn't terrible all along or that so many people hate Jews all along, and that's the only reason and not focus on the fact that for seventy, eighty years, we've been pumping an inert gas into that room actively, and all of a sudden over the last two years, that inert gas isn't being pumped into that room anymore. you know then I think that you're really not able to see the situation for what it is.
1: Yeah, I, I wanna hone in on a couple of words because I think language is really, really important um always, but especially when we when we are in moments like this. But um politics. The word politics. We use it really irresponsibly. We broadly defined. We Americans, we, the world, use it really irresponsibly. We use it as if politics is something that lives in voting booths and in congressional offices and doesn't live anywhere else. We we use it as if, oh yeah, politics is when people are on a stage debating each other about certain issues that are, uh, when they're talking about the economy, when they're talking, like, politics is everywhere. Okay, this, it's actually, I don't want to respond to people who say, don't politicize this with no, absolutely, we need to politicize this, because that implies it's not political in the first place. You you can't politicize this. This was a man who walked into a building and killed a bunch of people because of their ethno-religious background and their beliefs and actions. that That's what happened. That is, by the book, political. That is the most obvious example of a political action that I can think of. It is equally absurd to say don't politicize that as it is to say don't politicize a voting booth. Like it's political. So we're here We have a political situation. The question isn't, are we going to be political about it? But which politics are we going to mobilize? Are we going to mobilize a politics that is focused on white supremacy and how it is victimizing marginalized groups in this country, including Jews, at an increased rate because, like you said, of the dialing down of—I love that metaphor—the dialing down of— of the inert gas, or are we going to focus on something more vacuous and ambiguous than that? And that's where I want to bring in another word that I need to unpack, which is hate. We're, there's a lot of talk at, at vigils I've been to and and really well-meaning talk and really passionate talk about hate and how we need to fight hate. I, I really don't think that's good enough. I, I like The idea that this is hate implies that this is just like an emotion. Like, oh, we're we're fighting against people who hold this thing called hate in them. And it's just, it's ambiguous enough that it implies, oh, it's just people who sort of hate everything. Like they have this thing called hate that just reverberates out into the world. They're like against society. They're against the world. They just have some pathology about them. And that's just not what this is. Uh, They do have a pathology about them, I think, but they actually love many things. They love whiteness. They love the privileges and powers of whiteness. And they are acting, and in this case, he, the shooter, is acting to preserve something he loves. which is white privilege and the powers associated with being white. And he is attacking people that he feels are threatening those privileges. So we need to say what this is. We need to say we're combating white supremacy, that word needs to be comfortable to us. It needs to flow off of our tongues. We need to say when it's relevant that we're fighting transphobia. We need to say when it's relevant we are fighting Islamophobia. We need to say we are fighting anti-Semitism. We can't speak in terms of broad hate because then what we're doing is we're setting up a frame where people can say, oh, you hate people on the right wing. And, And that's ultimately the same, you're replicating the problem on the other side, quote-unquote. I'm sorry, but this isn't this isn't about that. Like, this is, we, I, I do hate white supremacy. Like, we should say that. Like, white supremacy is a terrible system that marginalizes many of my friends, many people who aren't my friends, who I live alongside, and, and want to have liberated lives. And we're fighting that. We're fighting white supremacy. The idea that this is some... Emotional abstraction called hate—it just misses the point, and it's—and it's not just semantics. It it endangers us long term because we create this mode of thinking where ultimately the problem is sort of having passionate anger because passionate anger sort of looks like hate. It, it feels like if you're angry at at the world or at subsections of the world, that in general is a problem because it is hate. We should hate things that are harming our world. We should love things that are bettering our world. Hate the right things. Hate white supremacy. Don't oppose this idea of hate writ large. And more than that, or in addition to that, don't pretend that this is some broad thing that isn't in specific Anti-Semitism. I mean, that's where me as a Jew, um, the, the tribal parts of me need to say this, that that needs to be present. It, it can't just be hate writ large. This was hate of Jews. This was hate with an object of hate, which in particular was Jews. And the reason for that was that the killer perceived them to be supporting refugees, supporting folks who were somehow outsiders to his world of whiteness and threatened the privileges that he has.
0: One of the things that I want to point out here is that it is true that many Jews support a much more open immigration policy. I am one of those Jews. You, Lex, are one of those Jews. Many of our friends are those Jews, and I would take it a step further. And I know that I actually had a conversation yesterday with a friend who's a scholar uh, uh, and who doesn't agree with me about this? But like I really, and I and I think that we've had conversations, Lex, where I'm not sure that you agree with me uh, about the way that I'm going to say this. I, I think you don't. But I aspire that there should be a Judaism that has as its core component the principle that because we were slaves in Egypt, because we were strangers in a strange land, therefore we should never treat a stranger any less than we would want to ourselves be treated. And to me, that means to love the immigrant and to do everything that we possibly can for the benefit of immigrants. That doesn't mean completely open borders, but it means a loving point of view towards immigrants and immigration that is certainly not what this killer and others would have deemed to be a positive thing. I want all of Judaism to stand for that. However at the present time, that is not the case. And there's actually a division within the Jewish community on this and pretty much every issue. And the tragedy among many tragedies of this situation is that it very well could be the case, I have no idea, but it very well could be the case that among the dead were people who actually did not support a fundamentally more open approach to immigration or maybe even supported Donald Trump and his point of view. We don't know. And the killer didn't know. The killer assumed, as many assume, that all Jews think a certain way about certain issues, including this one. And and I come away with that really sort of struggling because I think that one thing, one takeaway that I have from this anti-Semitic act, and that of course I knew before and that we all knew before, but it reinforces, is that anti-Semites are going to hold Jews responsible for what other Jews do. And one approach that you could take towards that is to say, and therefore we should be really careful if we are doing something as Jews that's going to piss off the anti-Semites, because that's a big responsibility. We might cause the harm or the death of somebody who actually doesn't agree with us because we know that all anti-Semites think that all Jews are the same. So if I speak loudly as a Jew in favor of immigration or whatever progressive policies, or on the flip side, whatever conservative policies that I might believe in, I might be endangering another Jew who doesn't agree with me. That's a big responsibility. And I fear that some Jews might say, and therefore we should really tamp all this down. We should really be careful. We should really not speak up. We should see ourselves in America as the way we saw ourselves in Europe as sort of guests in this foreign land and we better just kind of keep our heads down. But I don't think that that's right. I don't think it's descriptively right about our place in America. And I don't think it's a way of being Jewish that I wanna live in. But what I do have to take responsibility, I think from now on and, and, and before, but what this does focus all of us on is that there might be consequences to the actions that we take and those consequences may not be borne only by us, and in fact, might be borne by others. And I'm not sure exactly what to do with that, right? I, I know that what I'm not going to do with that is to stop standing up for what I believe in.
1: This has to be an easy answer. Like, we need to take risks, we need to do what is right, knowing that there are risks. And that's true as Jews, and that's true as human beings. It's. I hope it's true for people who aren't Jews. Like, like I, um, we you mentioned briefly, like definitionally, we might differ about like what Judaism is, et cetera. But like where we're entirely aligned is that I share your desire. If I could get every Jew in a in a one on one conversation or whatever, and get all of them to support to support refugees and. And to stand up for, for people who are being marginalized by many governments around the world. Like, I would do that. Like, I don't want it to sound like I don't support such a thing. Um, it's just, you know, whether Juda- whether Judaism has, possesses as a value, um, anything in particular, uh, like, uh, in- including the idea that we need to welcome the stranger, including refugees. Um, but, but what's so chilling about this? is precisely that the guy killed us because of what for so many of us is an aspirational thing. It's not that he just killed us for being Jews. Many people in many eras have in fact killed people simply for being Jews. This wasn't. This this is also not new. There have been other people in the past that have killed Jews for perceived or real beliefs that Jews may have largely held. But The fact that he walked into a synagogue and killed 11 people precisely because they did something we want Jewish communities to stand up and do, which is stand up for welcoming refugees, that's terrifying because it is saying to us ultimately, if you're going to keep doing this work, watch the hell out. Like that's precisely what he meant to do. He he wanted to kill the people in that room, but you better believe that part of this is also to create a fear based environment where Jews in general are scared to act. I just want to point out that it's
0: not clear to me, and again, the information is not quite 100% clear, I think, at this point, so I want to be careful with what we say, but it's not at all clear to me that the congregations, that all three congregations that meet in that building supported the refugee Shabbat. Absolutely, absolutely. And even if they did, obviously, that doesn't mean that every member of that congregation supported it. So, so no yeah. matter what the actual situation is, there were very likely people killed who actually were not engaging in the activity that you and I really wish they would engage in. And there probably were
1: also people who were, but but it's right. uh, that's the tragedy of it. Yeah, I mean, I I totally agree with you, and and I also want to, I mean. Hopefully this doesn't sound like too jarring a shift of gears. I think that this is part of this conversation. But I I also want to name Kentucky, two Mm -hmm. black people who were shot by a different white man who said directly afterwards to a white witness who was in the grocery store where he shot these people, oh, don't worry, whites don't kill whites. I mean, another guy who committed a white supremacist act targeting Two people of color. Two- also, he
0: had he had came came into that Kroger because he wasn't able to get into the church across the street. Right, so he was actually trying to commit a, a very analogous
1: murder in a black church. Exactly. Yeah, and and so we we need once again this comes back to the hate versus white supremacy thing. Like we need to recognize that there's there's a root cause here. namely white supremacy, there are systems and structures in place that are mobilizing that root cause uh, at an increased rate right now than at some eras of the past. But um, we need to notice and act on the fact that these two events happened in such close proximity for such similar purposes at two groups of people that we might think of in our heads as separate from one another. First off, there's lots of black Jews who fit into both groups and who at a time at a moment, like right now, need all of our support, but also people who are just one or the other, whether it's just black, but not Jewish or just Jewish and not black, like, we absolutely need to see that there's there's a shared there's a shared root cause here that manifests differently for each group. I don't want to make it sound like this is, you know, targeting everyone equally and similarly in every single context and era. No, but it is a shared root cause that we need to oppose. But going back to what you said, that that piece of this, that Jews were killed for a perception that they stand for something we want to stand for is incredibly chilling. It's it's not part of every single anti-Semitic attack that we can look back at in history.
0: Yeah, and I think that we're going to start veering into politics even more. I guess we have the whole time, uh, the whole you know, time. <laughs> into, but, but, the, um, but there's, a, there's an element here. I guess I want to, since you brought it up, I want to talk about solidarity. And I want to talk about sort of where does that fit in? What does that compel us to do? To my mind, there, there are actually two dimensions of this. One comes from Jewish values and one comes from the American reality. And I, I think that they actually send us to the same place. But the way that I read it, and inspired by folks that we've had on the podcast, like Shai Held and Miriam Turlinchamp and both Stosh Kotler and Jason Kimmelman Block from Bend the Ark, and others, we Jews have suffered a lot. And I think that one of the principles that has remained a key principle of Judaism, and that I hope will grow and grow, is that the response to that suffering, Yehuda Kurtzer, I think, laid this out, could be, don't be a victim. Should be don't be a victim, protect ourselves, yes. It could be don't be a perpetrator, don't do this to other people, absolutely. And it also must be don't be a bystander, right? Don't imagine that when this happens to other people that somehow that's not part of your story, part of what you have to be concerned about. And so it feels to me that every time we experience an anti-Semitic incident, we should go through those three analyses and take all three of them seriously. And the other piece is just practical, right? That we can't tell ourselves anymore that those folks out there who hate brown people, who hate LGBT folks, who hate women, who hate trans folk, who hate Muslims, who hate other religious minorities, who hate Native Americans, who hate, who hate, who hate and like i- I agree with what you're saying about hate, but yeah, yeah. who who do that to all of those folks that somehow we can keep ourselves you know quiet, they'll lump us into the white category, whether we are white or not white, whether we have white privilege or don't, we do um we We can't imagine anymore that the white supremacists are going to think that we're white, that we're with them. So we are put by this experience, and we should have been there already from other anti-Semitism and from values, in my opinion. And I think that we should be there now is to say, hey, we're on the side of the people that that these folks are trying to kill, trying to harm, trying to uh, put into a lesser status. We are on that side. And therefore, we have to make common cause. We should make common cause with the others who are who are also in the, the target of white supremacy. To my mind, if we don't walk away from this experience with a stronger resolve to stand with all of the folks that I mentioned as a single coalition to sort of take back the America that we all believe in or perhaps don't believe in but dream of, then in my view, we have taken a disappointing turn. And I'll tell you that I'm concerned When I see a lot of responses to this from elements of the Jewish community that sound to me a lot like hunkering down, like focusing only on ourselves and our fears and trying to suggest that we shouldn't be as politically active because that puts us more in the target, that we shouldn't stand up for other folks because, you know, why should we put ourselves out there and risk being victimized for people who are not us? you know and maybe some of that is only a, a temporary response that you that's understandable to a trauma that just happened well time will tell i fear that time has told us before that actually that is a response that sticks for a long time Yes, we should care for ourselves. Yes, we should sit Shiva. Certainly, we should care for the folks who have lost loved ones and members of their community. And we should care for all Jews who feel traumatized by this experience. And at the same time, and this is why I was so inspired by the marches that uh, folks in Pittsburgh held when Donald Trump came to visit Pittsburgh, that they were able to both engage in the mourning and in the self-care that is needed after a horrible massacre like this. And at the same time, they were able to engage in quote politics. Right? They were yeah. able to stand up and do what needed to be done because it's not the case, as we're often told by certain folks, that you have to choose. You know, that you that you can only mourn now and politics later. That's not True. And actually, that's dangerous.
1: L- little thing. I mean, you brought up the word hate again. I, just to clarify fully, hate as a verb, I have no problem with. Because hate as a verb, when you say X person hates trans people, but like it has a direct object. It is specific. It You have to define who is being hated. Hate as an abstract noun is what I'm opposing. The idea that the problem here is something called hate um, and emotion. But um, just pivoting a little bit, I, I think related to the point you're making about really understanding what this attack was about and, and responding as well as we can, I, I wanted to look, as we always do on this show, to Jewish institutions. Um, and I wanted to name um, a particular initiative that has popped up after Pittsburgh, which is called Show Up on Shabbat. It's a hashtag, Show Up on Shabbat. And when I saw it, I was really, really excited because when I first saw it, I assumed that what this hashtag was was in an, a hashtag bent on getting people to show up in the streets on Shabbat In solidarity with others, as Jews, with other Jews, etc., marking Shabbat in whatever ways, and also simultaneously doing political work like we've been talking about. It turns out that it's a different thing. It's not a bad thing. Um, It's a different thing, which is specifically focused, uh, as far as I understand the language, on having people show up in synagogues. And... This is not a popular thing to say, and this um, and if you're a listener who doesn't agree with me on this, like really send a note. Um, I don't think that the only response here or the primary response here is showing up. For Shabbat services. I, I want to validate people who are not regular synagogue goers who may have seen this and, and felt whatever level of conflicted feelings. I've talked to a few such people. Um, I also want to validate those who it really does speak to you and you do want to show up in synagogue as a way of bearing witness to those who died. But I, I want to name that like showing up on Shabbat to me means being publicly a Jew, acting on it on Shabbat on Friday night through Saturday. Like, I will be on Friday night in synagogue. It's funny that I bring like, I will actually be in a synagogue this Friday night, just because, I mean, I was planning on it before this happened. I mean, we haven't been to our synagogue that we're members of, Valerie and I, in a while, and we're gonna go there. It's a community Shabbat, and we, I, we couldn't need a community Shabbat um, where we gather together more than right now. Uh, Saturday morning, I will not be in synagogue. And I feel no guilt about that. I feel no shame about that. I will be in the streets of downtown Providence and I'll be chanting Torah. And I'll be part of a group of people that are speaking very loudly and passionately about being angry and being devastated and and needing to be in solidarity with others and needing to stand up for ourselves as Jews and, and doing that publicly. And I think that that is absolutely a really important thing to be doing right now. Whatever you do this Shabbat or future Shabbats, um, I do want all our listeners and everybody to be showing up. I just want to make sure that we carefully define showing up in a way that doesn't only center synagogues as the place to show up, but also just anywhere that we can be publicly Jews and honoring the memories of those lost.
0: Again, I guess I come back to that people can have all sorts of frames and all sorts of different ways that they want to emphasize how they're going to respond to what happened here. And many of them are right. I'm not going to say that all of them are right, Um, you know, but many of them are right. And some things that are right could be in conflict with one another. And if a person feels that the best way to honor the memory of people who in their own lives made coming early to services a priority, then of course you can do that to remember and to honor those people's priorities. But if you want to focus on the cause of what happened to those folks, the cause of what happened to them was sort of an approximate way that they came to synagogue early in the morning, but the larger cause was anti-Semitism. And the larger cause of that, as we are saying, is what's happening in our country. And if you feel that the best way to honor your response to that is to go out into the streets... Then that is an equally valid approach, and and I'd love to hear from the Jewish community more of a a projecting of 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 a variety of ways that you could respond to this, rather than sort of feeling pressure that there's sort of only one one right way. Um, As we're about to wrap up, I I guess I just want to close with the politics of the politics. You know, the like I really want to close on a politics high. And I want to deny, to a certain extent that it's politics, and also, like you say, affirm that everything is politics. But like when somebody commits a crime, and let's talk about this crime, nobody says, "Oh, we shouldn't catch the the killer right now and put him in prison because we have to mourn first. We have to absolutely catch the killer right away, and then we're going to mourn, you know, but at at the same time the the d a filed the charges right away, or the u s attorney. Um, Right. While people were still mourning. I mean, these things happen concurrently and they should happen concurrently because two things are happening, or more than two, but two things are happening when a terrible crime like this is committed. One is that the victims are harmed or killed and need to be mourned. And the other is that somebody did it to them and the somebody who did it to them needs to be stopped and the somebody who did it to them is sometimes only one person and sometimes it is a system or a group of people or whatever you know and I, and i think that we feel very comfortable with the idea that if for example a an organ a, a terrorist from an organized terrorist group commits a terrorist act that not only should that terrorist if he is still alive be immediately captured But also it would be appropriate to fight the terrorist group right away. So similarly, if somebody commits an act of anti-Semitism, but there's not a particular group that he's part of that is egging him on, etc., there's still a larger picture that caused this act to take place. And it is entirely appropriate to name that and to work to end that situation right away. And so I want to say sort of towards the close that if you believe, and not everybody has to believe this, but I certainly do, if you believe that the president of the United States intentionally or unintentionally, perhaps he's being used by others, but that the president of the United States is causing a environment in our society that is allowing the disgraceful phenomenon of anti-Semitism to move from being a hateful view that people hold in their hearts and on their computers to a motivation to kill people. If you believe that, then you should act on that belief and work to end that situation and not to embrace the president when he comes to visit your city because he is the president. To my mind, the people in Pittsburgh who acted right away when they were faced with a situation not of their choosing, right? Both the attack itself and the president deciding to visit a few days later, when they decided to respond to that visit by essentially shunning the president and marching against him and and everything that they did. To my mind, those folks are heroes and they've shown us the way to respond to this event and the others that will inevitably happen, God forbid, but, but we should expect that they will. If we don't work on the larger causes of what's happening right away, then I think that we're even more likely to face them again and again and again. But if you do believe that, that this is the cause, then you're engaging in politics by failing to act just as much as you are engaging in politics by acting.
1: Um, We we are going to close this episode. We're not closing this conversation in our hearts or minds or wavelengths of sound. This will be here. Like this, this is the most devastating anti-Semitic attack in American history by number of people killed. I mean, this is going to loom in all of our lives moving forward. So we're not ending this conversation. We are ending this episode and we're going to close it out as we always do and especially emphasize that... We want to hear from you. We want to hear from you in terms of what our role as Judaism Unbound is in this moment, what you want us to continue emphasizing along these lines and on these conversation threads and where you'd push us, where you disagree. Like, we really want to hear from you. So there's a variety of ways for you to do that. Um, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. You can head to our Twitter feed, at Judaism Unbound. You can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com and you can always email us at dan at JudaismUnbound.com or lex at JudaismUnbound.com or both. We're not going to plug for a donation as we generally do. It doesn't feel like the moment for that. But we do appreciate the support that people have been able to give us in the past and and moving forward. So, thank you so much for listening. This has been Judaism I'm Unbound, and we'll see you in the streets.